Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I am privileged each week to serve as your host and interviewer. Now, for those of you who have subscribed to this podcast, you now know that we are the largest weekly podcast worldwide now dedicated to the topic of leadership. Each week, we tend to pick different guests that we think can add value to your role as a leader. Often, they are inside authors or thought leaders to Franklin Covey. Sometimes, they are business CEOs, titans, celebrities that have a particularly valuable point of view where I've perhaps read their work or know them personally and bring them on set. And today, we have kind of a combination of both. We have a two-part interview of two very influential black men who are leaders in America to speak about the conversation that all of us are talking about right now, which is, of course, the social unrest and Black Lives Matter and how we can all be part of the solution. In just a moment, I will introduce those two uh, gentlemen, and we'll talk to each of them for about a half an hour. Prior to welcoming our first guest, I want to let everybody know Franklin Covey has just authored a new book called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. These three um, authors, Pamela Fuller, Mark Murphy, and Ann Chow, have worked the better part of the last 18 months authoring this book. And this book will be on sale in bookstores on, I believe it is October 27th. We think the book can be a great uh, read for every leader, anybody who is in a position to be part of the conversation. And perhaps to quote our first guest, Stedman Graham, to be more importantly part of the solution. So now I'd like to welcome our first guest to On Leadership, Stedman Graham, the multi-New York Times best-selling author, entrepreneur, business leader, and longtime friend of mine. Stedman, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, how are you? I'm great, sir. Thank you for joining us Good. today. I think you're joining us today from the West Coast. Is that right? Uh, I'm joined, yeah, from the West Coast, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you getting up early and talking to us today. Stephen, you and I have known each other for the better part of 20 years. I think I have read every book you have published, including one of my favorites, Identity Leadership, that we'll talk about in just a few moments. Stephen, I invited you on, and it took about one second for you to agree, so for that, I am super grateful. Our guests and our listeners today are going to be very interested in what our guests have to say about being part of the solution in this ongoing conversation that's come to, quite frankly, a pinnacle in the last week or so. Before we talk about that, I want to remind our guest of a story that I think is especially enlightening to who you are as a person. About a year and a half ago, when the last royal wedding in England was going on, I believe it was Prince Harry was marrying uh, Meghan Markle. Well, that's happened since then. And I saw your life partner, Oprah, walking down the aisle prior to the bride, whatever it was. And I think I texted you or I called you and said, Stedman, did you not get an invite? You weren't at the royal wedding. And I loved your answer because I'm going to ask you to check your humility right now and remind our viewers uh, why you did not attend the royal wedding with um, your partner and friend, Oprah Winfrey? Well, it, you know, it happened to be on the, the same date I had an engagement, uh, you know, speaking at a university at their commencement. And uh, I don't care what the situation was. There's no way I, I would just cancel that and all of a sudden go to um, an event. Uh, you know, and, 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 and break my word. Uh, and uh, so that's not even, that's not even negotiable. Uh, so that's why I wasn't there. 
Stephen, I appreciate you sharing that point because I think that is the perfect story to sum how I have watched your career for 25 years. You and our co-founder, Dr. Covey, were very dear friends, as was your partner with, with uh, Dr. Covey, and I have enjoyed being um, just in your realm, reading, listening to you, learning from you. I've invited you on today because I want to get your perspective and really be in a listening mode. As a white man in his 50s, who is a father to three sons, I'm a husband, I'm an executive officer, I'm a podcast host, a speaker, I really want to listen to you on how I can be a better part of the solution to the conversation around race that's happening right now in America. You and I have agreed to have a frank conversation. Can you start this discussion around what it's been like for you to be listening, watching, and learning, and what advice do you have around how to frame this conversation on how we can be more focused on being part of the solution and less the problem? Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I want to get away from the labels. And the labels of white, you just said white, I don't see you as white, I don't want to see you as white, I want to see you as Scott. Uh, I don't want to be introduced as black, I want to you know, be introduced as Stedman. And valued for, your, for who you are as a human being. And oftentimes, you know, when you, when you work on the, uh, when you're focused on the external world as a way to define your existence, you're always going to be marginalized. Uh, and you'll be marginalized as long as you let the world define you as opposed to you being defined uh, by who you are as a person. And I've gone through that. I've gone through that with my relationship with Oprah, being defined uh, by that, uh, being defined by race in my life, I had a race-based consciousness. I thought it was about the color of my skin, being defined by your family, being defined by the fact that I grew up with two special need brothers in my family and being defined by that. So I've, I've gone through all of these definitions, even, uh, you know, grew up in an all black town surrounded by a white county where they said nothing ever good comes out of white, but being defined by that. And Scott, what I've learned throughout my life is that uh, if you're looking for uh, freedom, you'll never find it on the outside. You know, it's not how the world defines you, but it's how you define yourself. And the question is, do you have the tools to be able to do that? And I would say that most of us don't have the tools to create self-mastery, self-efficacy, self-empowerment for ourselves, which is what we need today in order to be competitive in the 21st century. Because we're stuck in a fixed mindset. And we're stuck in this historical framework that takes us back to our trauma, it takes, it back, takes us back to our pain and how we grew up. And today, you know, uh, the world is asking for a growth mindset. How do you move from a, a fixed mindset to a growth mindset where you understand how to take information, education, and make it relevant to who you are, transfer it to your mind so you become a thinking human being, and then transfer that to, transfer that to the American free enterprise system so you can create and design your own future. Because we live in a world today where you have to create your own design. You have to create your own system for success and not buy into the average system. You know, the school system that teaches you how to memorize, take tests, repeat the information back, get labeled with a grade, two weeks later you forget the information. Not buying into a system where you keep doing the same thing over and over every single day. So what is your system for success? And what does that look like? 
And how do you organize that? How do you empower yourself? And that's what we need to solve some of the issues that we're talking about today. Stebbin, you are a very successful entrepreneur, the CEO of a company. Uh, what advice would you give boards of directors, chairmen, CEOs? Because in organizations, you know, we can be a part of the solution in terms of creating a workplace of inclusion and valuing diversity. As you counsel and coach and talk with senior business leaders, regardless of gender or race or age or sexual orientation, what advice would you give the role of leaders inside organizations at the most senior level about how they can be part of the solution and create an environment where everyone can succeed? Uh, Scott, that's a great question. And really it's very simple. Uh, it's three words, work on yourself. You know, all of us are equal because all of us have 24 hours. The question is, what do we do in, in that 24 hours? And what we do in that 24 hours is really work on ourselves so that the more we have, the more we can give. And it really is about leadership. I mean, identity leadership is, is if I defined it, it's self-leadership based on a philosophy that you can't lead anybody else until you first lead yourself. So you can't give what you don't have. So all of my life, what I try to do is, is to get beyond the labels and to get beyond the race-based consciousness and get beyond all of the internal things that kind of hold me back. So I have to work on myself every single day so I can be the best person I could possibly be. So that would be the advice. The, the, the question is, is, do you know how to do that successfully? And I would say that 6.9 billion people are followers. You know, 1% kind of run the world, everybody else is following. So are you a follower or, or are you a leader? And do you know, and do you have the content or the information to raise your consciousness so that you can be the best person you have? That's the question. Are you a reader? Are you a learner? Are you a developer? I know it's what, what, what Stephen Covey has dedicated his life to doing and Covey organization has dedicated their life to doing is trying to get people to understand how to reach their potential as a human being. That's what you do. That's what you work on. Stebbin, in addition to being an entrepreneur and a business leader, you are also a teacher, a coach, an investor in youth. For decades, you have put much of your brand, your energy, your creativity, your reputation into youth leadership. Would you just speak to our listeners and viewers around the progress that's being made, perhaps on your own front, the things that your group is actually doing in terms of investing in urban youth leadership and, and kind of how do you see what the future looks like in that conversation? Well, Scott, that's a, that's a, I'm so glad you asked ask about that because I spent all of my, my, I spent really most of my life trying to figure out how to empower young people uh, and how to work in communities to be able to disseminate the content that's relevant to improving schools and organizations. And so I spent seven years developing curriculum. I have a book called Teens Can Make It Happen. Uh, and we're in the schools. We started in middle school all the way up to high school. And we work also in community colleges and colleges, developing curriculum and courses for, for them around identity leadership. And so to me, if you're not working with young people, you're really not doing anything because that's the future. And if we're gonna heal this country, we got to be able to go back in these communities and empower young people, hopefully with the right curriculum, 
that's relevant to their uh, social emotional development. Because right now, a lot of times the curriculum in some of these urban markets are dumbed down. You know, they don't have the resources. Um, they're kind of designed for people to be workers and followers for the rest of their life because they don't have access to the, to the right information. Uh, and, and so being able to, again, give them additional information, which is what I've worked on with this nine step success process, self-actualization process that teaches you how to organize, uh, information around yourself so you can empower yourself. In addition to what you learn in school, I think is a great support system for uh, students anywhere in the world. And that's what we're trying to do is build systems to set up and disseminate so we can set up and disseminate content that's relevant not only to history and, and science and math and STEM programs, but also relevant to, to leadership and particularly identity leadership. Stedman, uh, it's been a traumatic two weeks in America. Um, some would argue it's been a traumatic, you know, 250 years for a large segment of our population. As you reflect as a friend, a citizen, and all the roles that you play, what are you encouraged about that's come out of the last several weeks of um, demonstrations, protests, conversation, dialogue? What are you encouraged about, signs of hope that you see in this overall social justice conversation? I think what I'm encouraged about, Scott, and uh, boy, this is, those are great questions, is that uh, we're starting to raise our consciousness about the people who have been um, uh, underserved. And those are people of color, those are people who are poor, those are the homeless, those are, those are folks that, you know, we should be focused on in terms of, uh, uh, in trying to empower them. Uh, and, that, and, and that we've always, actually we've always done that in America. I mean, the way we've built communities is that we go down and we, you know, focus on the least of those people who have, who, you know, who don't have the opportunity. Uh, when I was going to school, you know, uh, which is a long time ago, our graduation rate was almost 99%. And you knew the ones that didn't graduate. Hmm. Now your graduation rate in some of these cases are, are 50%, 50%. And you got 50% dropout rates. And so what that says is that we haven't, we don't focus on people that need the help. And so I'm encouraged by the fact that we're all trying to come together around in America so that we can actually help people who are, who, who, who are the least of us, who need the help. Uh, and, and are starting to realize that we cannot build a stronger economy unless everybody participates in that. You can't have the 1% against the 99% that don't have. You know, there's the, 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 gap, the achievement gap is, is, is too wide. So our ability to be able to understand what we have to do, we got to go back in these communities and we got to help people who are less fortunate is what I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about. Stedman, I want you to metaphorically put your arm around me like my big brother. Uh, as I set up the next scenario, I'm going to be a bit vulnerable and I'll bet you my social media... Uh, goes sideways when this airs. But here, here is a personal experience. As you know, I live downtown Salt Lake City with my three sons, six that are eight and 10, and my wife, Stephanie, of about 11 years. We live literally right downtown. The Capitol is literally just outside of our backyard. And as the 
as the nation inflamed. Two weeks ago, there were massive protests here in Salt Lake City, as there were in nearly every major city across America. There were um, police cars being burned. There were stores being looted. There, the Capitol was defaced. There were Black Hawk helicopters. And I found myself, like I'll bet you, some large portion of America distracted by the looters, distracted by the larceny. It was, it was devastating in parts of Chicago. Friends were texting me in real time. I lived in Chicago, as you know, for six years. Coach me, um, educate me on how do I, as a citizen, um, resist the temptation to be distracted by the fringe looting, by the fringe criminal behavior that I think in many people's subconscious minds or conscious minds took away from the message that the legitimate protests were trying to send. Put your arm around me and speak to me in a way that I can resist that temptation to focus on the fringe behavior. Because I bet you there are millions of people like me that are, are for, because of the media, because of our age, because of our own experience, aren't able to be empathically listening and identify. That whole jumbled mess there, um, what do you got? Well, you know, essentially it comes down to people caring about their community. And when you are disenfranchised, when you don't really own anything, I mean, the people that are, um, you know, probably destroying things, they don't really have a vested interest in that community. They own no businesses. They, you know, have no way to economically take care of themselves. They're disenfranchised. You have uh, franchises come in and taking over the whole community. People can't even hire their own people that live in that community. So nobody really cares about that. You know, they're angry because they don't have any money. They're angry because they can't take care of their families. Mm -hmm. They're angry because they, they can't educate their kids at the highest possible level. And so what we have is kind of a caste system, you know, this caste system, you know, is, is, is separate and it basically it runs on its own. It's, it's designed, it's institutionalized to run, run that way to produce, um, you know, uh, low quality output. So when we just, we can get to the root of the problem and stop dancing around all of this and figure out how to build an effective community. We can send someone to the moon, but we can't build an effective community that is relevant to everybody's social economic development. There's something wrong with that picture. And so we don't need two caste systems, we need one America. And we need that America to be the greatest America we can possibly build because it starts with individuals, one person at a time, and it starts with communities and families and everybody wants the same thing. And so if we want to talk about being competitive in, competitive in the 21st century, we got to talk about we got to talk about how do we actually, you know, work in our local uh, areas, you know, like Utah and Salt Lake and those those neighborhoods and those communities to build them up to where, you know, Salt Lake, Salt Lake City and Utah is competitive in the world that we live in every single day. What does that look like? Stedman, how do you right a wrong? 
I'm going to guess right now in the US, and for that matter in the world, there are millions of elected officials, CEOs, business leaders, parents, that said something, wrote something, took a photograph in their college fraternity. You see it every day now. Another politician, another leader is taken down, resigns, humiliated, because a picture surfaced of them in you know, blackface. Or they said something or wrote something that now, of course, is you know, considered um, unconscionable. Any advice you would give to, I'm gonna bet you, a countless number of people who are sitting on pins and needles, wondering if something they did, said, wrote, treated five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 10 days ago. Um, it's an interesting question, but what advice would you give people to right a wrong that may not have been surfaced, that they may hope isn't surfaced, that they know about something they've done, they don't believe that anymore? It's an awkward question, but I think the answer can be profound to a lot of people. If you were coaching someone that's in that situation, you see a lot of actors and endorsers that are being dropped because of something that surfaced recently. You've been in the media your entire life, as has your partner. Um, coach us. Well, uh, when you know better, you do better. And, you know, we can't redo things that we did before. We just have to say, you know what? Um, I'm going to just try to be the best person I possibly can. And, and, and so you got to be able to give people some wiggle room. You know, nobody's a hundred percent. And there's no angels out here. You know, everybody has, has issues that they deal with all the time. And we're just, it's a process of, you know, understanding who you are and that's a life journey. So when you, when, like I said, when you know better, like I said, when you know better, you do better. But the ability to be able to um, be the best person you can be, and, and really it's a learning issue of, of, of how to take information and, and, and knowledge and make it relevant to your development. And that's a leadership issue. You know, this is also a structural issue. So we gotta be able to organize the right content and at least care about the people in our communities and care about the, the young kids in our schools and care about um, uh, you know folks having jobs and 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 developing equality and all of that. So it's ability to be able to to um, give people the opportunity, and we know how to do that. We really understand what that looks like. We understand what makes up a strong family. We understand what makes up a strong community. We understand what makes up a, a strong school and organization. We get that. So how do we all come together, taking our intellectual intellectual capital, putting that together to be able to figure out how we empower each person, one person at a time. I mean, that's what I've spent my whole life doing is teaching people the process of success and how that works. And what I understand is this, that the process of success is the same for everybody. The difference is some people know it and some people don't. Stedman, you and your partner are wildly well-known and influential in the spotlight, whether you wanna be or not. Um, I follow Oprah on social media. I saw a post, I think, of you and her doing a puzzle during the quarantine a few weeks ago. It's kind of an endearing insight into your life. Uh, throw me a bone. When you're watching the coverage with Oprah 
and the last couple of weeks of protests and such, and uh, with the three or four very uh, public um, murders of uh, uh, black women and men in America at the hands of law enforcement or otherwise, and you put it on mute or you turn the TV off, what's the conversation like? Well, like the rest of the world, we're really disappointed that, you know, you have uh, a policeman who can put their knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes and 47 seconds and people just watch and nobody says anything. And the guy is saying, I can't breathe and he's dying, he's calling for his mother. And, and, and again, nothing happens. And so, uh, you know, we're kind of outraged by that. So it's kind of a perfect storm where you have all of these incidents happening at one time. But this has kind of been going on for 400 years, you know, and you create, you know, this caste system has been created uh, for people to um, basically not have social economic opportunity uh, and to be marginalized based on the color of their skin. And so there's stories after stories after stories after stories after stories after stories throughout the years of families that have been destroyed and people who have not had the opportunity based on the color of their skin. And again, you know, it's happened for a lot of different cultures that have come into this country. You know, the Italians, the Jewish culture, you know, I'm sure the Mormon culture has had these issues. And so, you know, it's power versus the powerless. And, um, you know, systemically, when you can create an oppressive system that is put in place, designed to marginalize your existence, you know, you got to be uh, on your game all the time to get beyond that, that system in place. And so, you know, so we're always talking about what is, and then we're talking about what are the solutions, and of course, Oprah has done so much for so many people, and she's given back so much of her, 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 her wealth, and, uh, and she's helped so many people, and she spent her whole life trying to empower people as much as possible. So um, you know, I'm just fortunate to, to have a partner who is just unbelievable, um, and, and I've learned so much from her. And so we have these conversations and I'm, I'm kind of in a privileged position to be able to be with somebody who's, who, uh, who has been so influential to so many people around the world. It's true she has, and, and as have you, as I have watched, I mean, very closely an outsider, but um, a bit of an insider to watch your career. You're a prolific, pro prolific author, um, New York Times bestselling author. Your book, Identity Leadership, I think really is a, is a treasure because you are an expert on leadership, practitioner, teacher, coach. Uh, you talk a lot about the role that self-awareness plays, Stedman, in identity leadership. Would you reorient our listeners and viewers to the concept of identity leadership and why you're so passionate on the value that self-awareness plays um, as it relates to that topic? Thank you, Scott. Uh, well, man, I've dedicated my life to this process because I lived it. Yeah. I mean, I live it every single day. I get stuck in a box and people define me by labels and all of that. And so my goal is, again, not to have people define me, but for me to be able to define myself based on a nine-step success process. And the first step is you got to know who you are. I mean, that's, that's the key to all of this. 
is knowing who you are and knowing how to take information and education and make it relevant to your development based on your passions, based on your talents, based on your skills, and most importantly, based on the most powerful word in the world, which is love. So it really is transforming your life from negative to positive or, or from, from, from hate to love. And love is the foundation for organizing information. It's the foundation for organizing your strengths. It's the foundation for organizing your talents and your abilities. And so today we need love. We need to find it in our own lives first so that the more we have, the more we can give love back. And then we need to create a vision for ourselves to see not where we are, but where we can be. That's really a leadership issue is that it's not so much what has happened is that what can we learn from this, uh, these events and how do we now make ourselves better? How, what, what, what kind of country can we build for the future? And how do we lead other countries around the world? And then we have to have a plan for that. We have to organize and design a process for that. And we have to have a value system that goes with that. And we have to be able to build a team around that. And we have to be able to understand the value of information and education, how it becomes relevant to the 21st century. And how do we become competitive in this technological revolutionary uh, time in our life where now it's about the information and it's about the, the, the knowledge that we acquire for ourselves and how do we disseminate that knowledge to our communities so that they have the ability to be competitive in the 21st century. So, you know, I've dedicated my life to teaching people systems of how to do that in a, in a personalized manner, as well as, you know, I'm in the schools and, I'm, you know, again, I, I work with uh, educational organizations and, and teams and corporations and I have my clients and, and I'm teaching them in the same process that I've learned for myself so that I don't become a, a, a follower. I can become a leader of my own development. So the more I have, the more I can give. Stedman Graham, people ask me all the time, so what is Stedman Graham like? And I'll say, you know what? He's just a gentleman. I mean, I, I, all the other adjectives I could use, you've proven it again today. You are the consummate gentleman. Thank you for carving out time out of your otherwise very demanding schedule to join us today on Leadership. This is why Dr. Covey was such a raving fan of you because you, what you do, what you say is very congruent. It comes alive in your book, Identity Leadership. And I, on behalf of our CEO and Chairman Bob Whitman, thank you for joining us today for this very important conversation. We wish you and your family uh, safety um, in the pandemic, which we're still going through, and look forward to partnering with you in the future as well. Thank you, Stedman. Thank you so much, Scott. Great job. And now for our next guest, Greg Moore, the former managing editor of the Boston Globe and the former editor-in-chief of the Denver Post. In both positions, Greg led, led teams that won Pulitzer Prizes for their investigative journalism. Greg, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, it's good to be with you. Greg, so you are a lifelong journalist. In your most recent um, reinvention, you are now one of the principal owners of Deke Digital, which is an expert media company based in Denver, Colorado, where you take executives, leaders, and help to create them as thought leaders while helping them place their articles and their, their points of view in a variety of uh, media venues. You are a partner of Franklin Covey, and you are responsible, as are your partners, for a lot of our successful distribution as well. Could not be a bigger fan of Deke Digital and of you. 
as well. I'm so delighted that you've joined us today. And let me start with, first, happy anniversary. You and your Thank wife you. just celebrated, was it 30 years? 20, 20, 20. 20. Yeah, 20. I'm aging you. I'm aging you. Yeah, you are. <laughs> hey, it's felt like 30 for her, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And also, simultaneously, congratulations on uh, two of your youngest daughters uh, just completed school. I believe it is your oldest um, daughter yeah. just graduated from high school, virtually. Is that right? High school. Yeah, just graduated from high school. And I, I do want to do a little shout out to the headmasters across the country who are trying to make um, high school graduation uh, still a special um, experience for these kids and, and, and our headmaster did a really great job on Zoom and then we later had a parade and the kids just felt very, very special and uh, they won't forget it and all the efforts that are going in to making this special around the country, my hat's off to, to these headmasters under some very difficult circumstances. Amen to that. We had a very similar experience. Uh, Greg, I invited you on today to follow my other friend, Stedman Graham, on this uh, raw, real, necessary conversation around social justice, Black Lives Matter, uh, the crossroads between social justice and workplace inclusion and diversity. You are a very well-known, award-winning, recognized journalist through many different decades of work across the nation. And so you and I have given some permission to each other to um, listen and learn. What I'd like to start with is, as a journalist, how, has, how have your colleagues that are journalists in media gotten it right in the last two weeks? This is more than a two-week conversation, right? It's a century-old plus conversation. Um, as a member of that community, now kind of just stepped away from it, what's your perspective? Grade the media the last couple of weeks. Well, like I, I would give the media like a B minus. Um, I think the coverage of the protest and, and the looting, I mean, those are kind of easy stories to cover, right? It's right in front of you. Uh, it's like covering a fire or God forbid, um, a car accident. But, but, but I also uh, think they've done a really good job by not sanitizing the language, like, like using the language head on, like the word racism, structural racism. Um, you know, not qualifying the fact that there's violence against uh, African-American men in this country. You have not normally seen that kind of um, language used and embraced by not just reporters and commentators, but, um, you know, by, by, by the people who are being interviewed on, on camera. And that's brought a realism and a rawness to it that I think has been a little bit of a shock to the system of, of viewers and maybe even some readers. But I think it's been real, it's been raw, and it's been helpful. But, you know, can we do better? Yes. And how? Uh, by focusing on the issues, like breaking it down and explain, you know, about policing in America and explain about redlining in America and explain about educational inequality in America and start talking about, you know, why online education is going to be fraught with difficulties if we don't provide broadband internet service to all communities. Uh, so there are a lot of equity issues and stuff that need to be examined. I don't expect it all to happen in a week or two weeks, but you know, a B minus for me is pretty good. Greg, I would describe you to my friends as kind of my big brother. You've been helping coach me on my writing, on my articles, on my books and in columns in the last couple of years. So I've gotten to know you very well. And with that, I'm gonna take some liberties to have you help to educate me as okay. a white executive in my 50s 
and so that I can be part of the solution. Let's get, let's get started. Okay. I have learned in the last 10 days that white privilege, which I might at first take offense to the term, white privilege does not mean that I have not struggled, that I have not worked hard. Can you explain why it is so important for white leaders to understand what white privilege means? It's important, it's, it's important to, to acknowledge being able to go through life and never feel once that you were denied an opportunity or you were treated differently because of the color of your skin. That's all that is, is that you know, if, if, if you're white in America, if something bad happens to you, the first thing uh, that comes to mind is not the fact that you're white. If you're an African-American and something bad happens to you, that you don't get served in a restaurant, somebody comes in, you know, after you've been standing there for 10 minutes and they get helped and, and, and you, you, if you're African-American, you think it has something to do with race. Now, maybe that's psychosis, but it's also the result of experience. So uh, it's just the acknowledgement that, you know, by virtue of being white, there's certain things that you don't deal with in American society and one of them is race, no question. You know, when I read your recent article in the Colorado Sun, I'm gonna ask yes. you to speak to that in just a moment. It was a heart-wrenching look into your life as a black man, um, as uh, the father of black children. I'm gonna get to that in a moment. It reminded me of something. A few months ago, back prior to quarantine, I gave a keynote speech in Kansas, in rural Kansas, and one of the members of the committee who had hired me during a, a preparatory dinner the night before mentioned to me that all of the members of a high school football team, they go and they play football on Friday evenings at a local stadium, and then they drive their cars back to the high school parking lot where they sit in their cars and they do their homework before they go home. And I, and I said to her, why? She says, because they don't have the internet. There's no internet at their home. I, I couldn't even fathom as a you know, educated, successful white man in my 50s not having high-speed fiber optic internet. But it was, it was a turning point for me to realize that I'm not, um, I'm not fully aware of my privilege. Take some license on that and, and remind the vast majority of us of how, you know, to, the, to the topic of our current book, coming out soon, Unconscious Bias, how unaware many of us are around how a large portion of us live our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, the, 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 one, of the, one of the things that's true about America is that we don't know a lot about ourselves. We don't know a lot about, you know, you know how people in rural America live. We don't know a lot about how poor people live. We don't know a lot about how black people live in this country. Uh, there are a lot of things we don't know about each other and that that is all sort of coming into focus right now. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the, the fact that you didn't know that about, you know, Internet access. Uh, this is an opportunity to learn and hopefully be moved to do something about it, because uh, until we all sort of understand the inequities that exist that really impact people's ability to fully um, fully live their lives to, to the full potential, until we actually understand, you know, what the impediments are to that, we can't begin to, you know, come up with an agenda to sort of change that. And I, I think people are hungry 
for more knowledge about how the, uh, the rest of America lives so they can really figure out what to do. I can't tell you how many people have sent me emails or called me up and asked for conversations so that they can get some insight about what to do. And, and what I tell people is uh, listen, learn, educate yourself, and then act. That's, that's really the obligation we all have as individuals at this moment. Greg, uh, how would you advise, coach, explain the responsibility of uh, a black associate to educate proactively their white colleagues or even bosses, leaders in an organization on this conversation? You know, um, that's a really, really great question, uh, Scott. And, and I think that when black people hear that, they just go, oh man, I, I just don't have the energy. Yeah. I don't have the time and I don't have the desire to be anybody's teacher. I, I think what we can do is sort of share our experiences, um, you know, fairly, honestly, rawly. I mean, using your word raw, like just tell it the way it is. And try and, and try to encourage people who really care about this issue, um, you know, to, to begin to do the work of educating themselves and talking to a broad range of people, not just the one or two black people who work with you or you know that you that you know in your social circle circle, but you know, uh, make yourself uncomfortable. Go out and meet some other folks. Uh, meet some people that don't necessarily fit your image of you know, what, what your black friend is or has been. And, um, and, and hear a, a diversity of stories and, and go out and read some books and, you know, watch some documentaries. There's a great show uh, that, just, um, that just came up on YouTube. A former uh, NFL player, I forgot his name, uh, is doing this um, interview series, uh, Conversations with a Black Man. And it's really, really good. Uh, one of the episodes is with um, Matthew McConaughey. And I, I would just encourage people to watch that and model that uh, as you go about having ed uh, conversations uh, to educate yourself about really what's happening around you uh, in our great country. Greg, by every measure, you made it to the highest level of your industry, right? I mean, from some of the most prestigious media outlets in our nation. What was your own journey like as a black man moving up in that industry, did people help you? Did you have advocates? Were there hurdles? Yes, uh, I had uh, great mentors. Um, you know, my my first uh, my first mentors were women. Uh, the, the the people who trained me when I got into the business in 1976, uh, they were women. And so, a lot of my management style, I like to say, is really um, uh, was developed, um, you know, at the feet of women. And, um, you know, it made me a lot more uh, collaborative. It made me a lot more empathetic. Uh, I, be I became a better listener, I think, because of that training. But, you know, I have mentors that were African-American, that were white. Uh, I've been blessed uh, to have really great teachers. And uh, I've inculcated all those lessons. They're a part of who I am. But was it easy or smooth sailing? No. I mean, constantly having to prove myself you know, when I would ask for something being told, well, you know, there are other people that are also deserving. I'm like, I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about me. And why is it that every time I ask for something, I've got to be told, well, you know, there are other people that are also deserving who've been in line for a long time. I don't think those conversations necessarily happen for people who didn't look like me. But, um, you know, by and large, uh, I felt like I earned what I got and that I got what I thought I earned and 
at the appropriate time. And, you know, while there were some bumps along the way and, and, and things of that nature, I've always been treated with a great deal of respect. Uh, I think I earned that respect and I was given it. So I've had a, a, a fairly complaint-free 40-year um, career in journalism. And, you know, like you said, I made it to the top of the profession. And, you know, I was on the Pulitzer Prize board for nine years and chaired it for my final year. And I've been exposed to a lot of great things and been able to do a lot of great things. So overall, uh, no complaints. Greg, you penned uh, an article for the Colorado Sun about a week and a half ago or so. Uh, or so. Um, I'm including it in this interview because I think it was so valuable, the newsletter. Would you share, I believe in part of the article, your wife commented on a situation with her brother. Would you just recreate that and the fact that that's not an outlier for your community and everybody watching and listening to this newsletter should read your op-ed because it gives a... A, um, a horrifying look of what it is like to be a black man in America. Well, uh, Scott, thank you for that. Um, that. That article has gotten more reaction than anything else I've ever written in my entire life. So that's really saying something. But the anecdote that you refer to, um, my brother-in-law was living with us at the time. And you know, he, we live in a suburb of Denver in a gated community. Uh, apparently, he had gotten into an altercation with a white guy. You know, admittedly, my brother-in-law had rolled through a roundabout, didn't, you know, stop at the yield sign and turned into a gas station. The guy followed him. They got into an argument and kind of berated him for not, you know, obeying traffic laws. They they pumped gas as they, you know, continued to bicker. And, and, the, and the white guy said to my brother-in-law, well, I'm going to call the cops. And my brother-in-law said, go ahead, finish pumping his gas, got in the car, drove home. My wife, a little bit later, was pulling into our, um, drive, our gate and noticed uh, when the gate opened that a police car followed her in. She thought the, cop, the cops were going to a, a neighbor's house, but they turned into our driveway and proceeded to ask for her brother and she didn't know why. She called him. He came upstairs and he was enraged. He knew exactly what had happened, that based on the word of this white guy, um, they had actually come to arrest him. Uh, for what? I don't know. But my wife, um, you know, who's a fairly well-educated person and knows her rights, uh, told the police that they needed to get off of our property, that they didn't have a warrant, that her brother was not coming out of the, the house. And uh, she kept him in the garage until they finally agreed to leave. And, uh, you know, we just both looked at each other and said, you know, like, no altercation, you know, no crime committed, no warrant. Why would they come to our house over a minor traffic altercation just simply based on the word of this white guy who picked up the telephone and called him and here they come running? So we, we both agreed that had my brother-in-law come out of that garage, there's no question he would have been face down on the ground in our driveway in front of my two young daughters, and perhaps uh, maybe even something worse could have happened. That's a reality where, um, you know, things like that can escalate very quickly, get out of control, and that you're always, you know, you're always um, suspect. Um, you know, you're always suspect that you're going to be treated that way. It was a really incredible uh, experience. Uh, later on, they uh, they issued a summons, uh, a court summons for my brother-in-law to come to court, and that was the last straw for me. I picked up the telephone. I called the police chief in town, 
uh, complained about the treatment, and it's the first and only time in a 40-year career that I uh, have mentioned my position as an editor when um, lodging a complaint, and uh, that, that summons was withdrawn. Greg, I reserve the right each week to write a blog that accompanies these interviews in the newsletter where I recap an insight on the interview. And this will be the first time in 110 episodes where I actually give the space up and turn it over to you. You don't know this, but I'm going to replace my blog with a link to your article because I think the article, beyond your brother and sister or wife's story, you share numerous other instances of times where you have faced um, horrifying scenarios that I can't even relate to. So I'm going to give that space because I want that article to get an extra boost. Thank you. I think it's a super valuable piece that you've contributed to the conversation. Thank Let's you. keep going. Greg, I live okay. in Salt Lake City. Um, lots of protesters the last 10 days. Uh, lots of crime, lots of looting. Uh, there was on video live a video of a white man, I think in his 60s, that pulled up to the burning police car a week ago Sunday, got out, and apparently, according to bystanders and to him in the news, yelled, all lives matter. And then he proceeded to take a bow and arrow, a crossbow and an arrow, and pointed it at some people. I think he also had a knife. The protesters took him down, fortunately, before he could shoot anyone with his bow and arrow. He was taken into custody, and to everyone's horror, later was released. Mm-hmm. Um, and came back to his car. I, I, I can't even explain why the police would have released a man who had a bow and arrow in his hand. But I want to use that as a chance for you to explain when perhaps ignorant people say all lives matter, why is that insensitive and not constructive to the concept of Black Lives Matter? Uh, really great question, Scott. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly simple. Um, you know, it's a di- um, it's a diminishing of 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 uh, concern uh, by saying Black Lives Matter. It doesn't mean that other lives don't matter. It's just a declaration that Black Lives Matter. And anyone who's a student of history would know that Black life has been taken for granted since they threw the first dead slave off the slave ship and kept going. So so that's all it is, is a declaration that we matter, <clears throat> that there needs to be an acknowledgement of that, and that what is embodied in that is that, you know, you can't just kill black people with abandon, with impunity, and that's what it is. It's a declaration, but it is in no way to um, indicate that you know black life is superior to white life or Asian life or it or any other life. It's just that this life matters too. And for anybody to sort of say, well, you know, all lives matter, it just is 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 tone deaf and it indicates that, you know, you don't you don't care about what uh, we think. You don't care about uh, our declaration saying, you know, as as uh, you may remember this from the a garbage strike in in Memphis that led to the assassination of Martin Luther King. When um, the 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 garbage men who, who were on strike, they had a sign. Do you remember what it said? I don't. I am a man. I am a man. That would be like in response to that. We go like, well, we're all men. 
Well, no, that you're missing the point. Hmm. And it's exactly the same thing. So, you know, Black Lives Matter is a declaration that, um, you know, what has been happening for all these years cannot continue to happen that, as Jesse Jackson says, uh, I am somebody. It's just a simple declaration. Greg, I'll bet some listeners and viewers are frustrated with the simplicity and perhaps apparent um, ignorance of my questions, but I think these are important questions to ask so that the conversation can continue to sophisticate and that everyone, to quote the previous guest, Stephen Graham, can be focused on part of the solution. Uh, Greg, you you obviously are in questions. the highest like, level like, of... I like your questions. Well, thank you. Thank you, my friend. You are obviously in the highest level of boardrooms, conversations, working every day with CEOs, coaching and advising uh, uh, business leaders on how they can become more influential in their industry. That is your expertise, Deke Digital. Uh, what advice would you give boards of directors, CEOs, and chairmen of, uh, of boards on how they can change the landscape of their organization? For example, Franklin Covey, right? We are. Uh, a 40-year company in Salt Lake City. We're a public company. Our chairman, Bob Whitman, and our chief people officer, Todd Davis, are passionately committed to improving the diversity of our board and of our executive team. Fact of the matter is, our board has two non-Caucasians on it. We're making great progress towards greater diversity. Uh, we have three females on our board. Our executive team is lacking in diversity, both in terms of sexual orientation, gender, probably age, racial diversity, we're making progress. We all know it's not enough yet. Right. How much right. is enough? What, what, if you were advising our chairman, Bob Whitman, on the, the makeup of our board and the makeup of our executive team, what advice would you give him? Uh, again, really, really, really great question. Uh, the advice I would give him is if, um, if, you uh, don't think you're where you need to be, then you got to keep working, okay? So what happens in a lot of organizations is, you know, they just stop reporting numbers or they stop taking photographs of their board. If, you're, if you would not be comfortable taking um, a photograph of your board and having it circulated all around the country, then you know you got a problem, okay? And you need to fix it. So how much is enough? Um, I, I don't know how much is enough, I just know that where we are is not even close to where we need to be. And in terms of my advice to, you know, corporate America, I would say, like, go in your organizations and start asking questions. Start talking to your staff, your, your, the people of color who are in your workforce, as well as um, uh, the white employees, because they know what's going on. And the, the problem in, in America is that nobody asks the question. Uh, you know, how are you doing? How do you feel here? You know, like, do you feel like you're heard? Do you feel like your opinion matters? Uh, do you feel like your contributions are recognized? Do you feel like you're being paid equally for the work that you do? Hey, Greg, I asked Stedman this same question because, again, I want our audience to understand your point of view on this. Over the last 10 days, there have been, I think, very effective protests around the nation, including in Salt Lake City. And in almost every case, not every case, some of it devolved into looting. Some of the protests, which is our, our constitutional right, were hijacked, you might argue, by looters, by criminals, taking advantage of the opportunity. What would you say to anybody like me that's listening and learning and trying to differentiate between the message that in some cases was distracted and hijacked 
by the looting going on. Will you talk to that point? I mentioned to Stedman that somebody on my social mentioned that looting and the destruction of property was a long accepted term of protest. I don't expect you to answer any certain way. I'm just interested in your point of view on the role that looting played during the last two weeks of an otherwise um, generation shaping awareness and conversation. Yeah, well, one of the things I would say is that uh, we shouldn't let the actions of a few overshadow uh, the actions of the many. Uh, the vast majority of people that were out protesting were law-abiding citizens, and yeah, there were some bad actors who, you know, took advantage of the opportunity to loot. Um, but, but uh, I don't, I don't think that we should uh, let that uh, take away from the larger message here. You know, looting uh, is it an accepted, you know, sort of part of protesting in America? I don't think so. Uh, the vast majority of protests that took place during um, the 1960s and later even during the Vietnam War didn't involve looting. I, I, don't, I don't think that's an accepted sort of part of American protest. It's not. It's criminal behavior. And I think it should be just sort of relegated uh, to that. You know, in terms of um, the, the message that, that people should be taking uh, from this is that, yeah, people are angry. Yeah, people are frustrated. And, you know, does that frustration sometimes manifest itself uh, you know, it's a garbage can thrown through a window and people taking advantage of looting. Yeah, it probably does. But uh, that that doesn't mean it should be condoned. And, and I've said this uh, a bunch of times. I mean, my heart uh, weeps for those store owners who have invested their life savings in building up a business and trying to serve their communities only to have it destroyed and ransacked during um, a, a moment of extreme frustration in, in a community. So. We have to deal with these problems so that these things don't fester and then explode the way we've seen that happen in, you know, some parts of Washington, D.C. and, and Minneapolis uh, and that kind of thing. But I don't want to get it twisted. I want to stay focused on what the real issues are that have brought millions upon millions of uh, citizens uh, into the streets of America, not just black people, but a rainbow of folks who really want to see real change in America when it comes to race relations and, and um, equity. And it's a really important moment for our country, and I think we're witnessing something really, really great. Greg, had I known you a decade ago, you easily could have been the godfather, right, to my children. If you would have caught one of my boys out looting during the protest, you would have done what? Oh, my goodness. If I had caught one of your boys looting, I think I would have grabbed him up. Yep. Uh, and, and told him, look, I, I'm taking you to your dad and drove him to your house with the shoes or whatever it is that he took and, um, you know, turn him over to you. What I hope would happen is that you or, or if it were me, I would march him back down to that store uh, with the, with the uh, uh, merchandise, make him put it back where he got it, and then we take him over to the police station so you can have a conversation about, you know, what that kind of behavior leads to. Sometimes you just have to like acquaint them with the consequences of um, their actions. And that's, I'm a big believer in that. Greg, the reason I've spent so much time talking about the looting is not because I'm fixated on that. I actually moved past that a week ago. Although there, wa there was a point where I was fixated on that. It did hijack my intellectual uh, discernment of what was going on, my empathy yeah. for the cause. 
I still think there is a large portion of the population that uses that to um, gloss over the bigger picture. You start, it feels like you're seeing a rise in white um, supremacist groups or armed militia protecting cities. Uh, what is your concern now 10 days into this around where the overall conversation is going? I feel pretty positive about this. Yeah, I mean, there are folks out there that, uh, you know, are using this opportunity to uh, uh, foment divisions. Um, you know, um, do, I, do I think that white supremacists are out there trying to uh, sort of build up their numbers off of this? Of course. But I think the vast majority of uh, people that are out there protesting or, or asking questions about uh, what's going on and, and actually learning more about yeah. um you know, the institutional effects of racism, they're, they're people of goodwill and they're trying to make a difference and they're trying to make America be a more perfect union. So, you know, I'm not scared of, you know, the white supremacists who are out here. Um, I'm not worried about them. I'm not scared of them. I don't think that they're taking over the country. I don't think they ever will take over the country. Um, and I, I just think that sometimes, you know, for you to really focus on what it is you need to do, you need to see what, what the other side is. You need to see what the, the dark side looks like so that you can be driven to the light. Um, you know, having them there, I think, is just a reminder of, um, you know, what we don't want to be as a country. And, you know, they don't concern me hardly at all. Beautifully said. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Greg, um, educate me on this emerging conversation around defunding police. It seems that that's kind of burst from the scene the last week or so, does that mean that some communities and cities will not have a police department and that we're going to yeah, self-govern? I mean, where, where is that going? You know what, Scott, when I first heard the term, I didn't, I didn't really know what it meant either. I, I wasn't quite sure. I was like, does this mean disbanding uh, police? So, so I had to educate myself and do some reading and, and things of that nature. I, I think what it means is that, you know, in most communities, uh, that have you know experienced uh, financial straits. Uh, the one department that tends not to be cut is the police and fire departments that they continue to be invested in, kind of similar to what we see on the federal level with the military, right? A whole bunch of other services, social services, and things get cut, and we continue to spend on um, you know with the Pentagon and the military, and obviously for for some good reasons. Well, the same thing has happened with uh, police departments around. The country and i think what the critics are saying now is you know we need to take some of that money that has been uh put toward police and expanding their portfolio from you know responding to crimes to you know actually you know working with mentally ill people and things of that nature let's take some of that money and put it into other programs job training programs uh mental health services uh, social services and things of that nature. And that's what they mean by defunding. That they mean taking some of the money that's been allocated to public safety and police departments um, and, and giving it to other uh, areas that have been starved for resources. It does not mean shutting down police departments. I think everybody realizes that you need police, uh, but, but you need police that are trained in the right way to interact with the people that they serve. I don't think anybody ever wants to see a police officer push a 75-year-old man down, watch his head slam into the pavement, blood coming out, and not offer aid. Okay, first of all, the guy should have never been pushed. But, but secondly, 
once a police officer realized he had injured a person inadvertently or whatever, he should have rendered aid. And that, to me, capsulizes what the problem is with policing uh, in this country. You, you can't have that kind of disregard for a citizen's safety. But, but, but it does not mean getting rid of the police department. It just means reordering some of the spending priorities uh, in government and making sure that other services that really have been long suffering in terms of resources and dollars got kind of get some of those uh, resources back. Greg, there's so many issues that are kind of in all confluencing together, right? There is this uh, fact of systemic generational racism that's institutionalized in government and organizations. There is racism amongst individual people in communities and towns. There is police brutality. There, there's lots of different issues. It is the biggest issue that someone like me can focus on to be part of the solution? Is it one of those? Is it all of those? Because there's lots of different conversations going on. There's police brutality, and then there is Black Lives Matter, and there is systemic racism in companies and multiple other issues. Where, what do you want me to know, and what do you want me to do? Well, um, you know, as I said earlier, I just want you to learn about all those issues. Um, I think that we all have to take responsibility for you know, educating ourselves, reading about, um, reading about these complicated questions. You know, in terms of, you know, which one of these is the most important, it's sort of like talking about the great seven habits of a highly effective people. <laughs> the book um, uh, was put out by Dr. Stephen Covey, um, you know, through Franklin Covey, your company. And somebody had asked him, which one of the seven habits is the most important? And it's like, well, his son would tell you it's the one that you're having the most problem with right, right at that particular moment. I think the biggest issue at the, this particular moment is the uh, income inequality gap. Because if you don't have money, you don't have resources uh, so that you can, you know, get internet or, you know, make your home more energy efficient. You know, a lot of poor people in this country spend like 25 or 30% of their income just on energy, okay? Electricity and gas and stuff like that. People don't understand that if they were in a, in a more energy efficient environment, they would actually have more money in their pocket. So I think addressing the, the, the wealth gap in this country, which, which really sort of correlates with, the, um, with race, is probably one of the most important issues. It's certainly one that I'm gonna be working on. Uh, I've spent a lot of time working on you know, education issues and access issues, but, but now I'm gonna start working uh, with people who are really dedicated to closing the um, the income the income gap the wealth gap uh, as some of my friends call it, Greg. I don't mean to try to make you an expert on all topics, or to I'm be not. the you know the moral guide of our country, or to be the president. Maybe you should be, but we'll talk after, uh, later about that. Um, speak to all of the viewers and listeners who are in law enforcement, who are married to a law enforcement professional. Uh, what do you want them to know and hear? I don't think by any measure do you demonize everybody in law enforcement. What would you like for anybody who surrounds the men and women who protect our livelihoods and to keep our cities peaceful and render aid to us? My neighbor's house burned, caught on fire on Sunday. And yeah. the house burned down. And there was police and firefighters risking their lives to save her home and her possessions and her memories. Uh, what do you want them to know about the state of America right now? 
Uh, well, here's what I would say to police officers. Um, you know, and I and I actually said this in an article that you referenced earlier. I, I, I wrote and very clearly stated, I do not hate police. Uh, I fear police. And I think that anybody that's in law enforcement, if you're looking at me, a 65-year-old black man who has ascended to the top of corporate America, has been afforded great opportunities uh, to make a good living, and I'm in fear of, of police officers every time I step out of my house, that I, that I know without a doubt that I could have been George uh, Floyd, then you got to look in the mirror and say, why does that guy feel that way? And what is it that I'm doing that elicits that kind of fear in a person that really should be walking around on top of the world, okay? Uh, ask yourself some real serious questions about why that is and then go about doing something uh, about it. Uh, that's what I would say. Uh, I think that the vast majority of police officers in this country uh, try to do try to do good that they really want to serve uh, the public but the bad apples um you know can overwhelm that and like i said before i wouldn't let you know the looting over overshadow the message of the protesters i think it's different with police officers because you know, they have the they have the, the power of life and death and um you know that that requires a higher responsibility to act if you see people doing wrong, if you see people in blue doing wrong, disrespecting people, not properly serving um, the, the, the public, that you, you are obligated to sort of speak up. And certainly if uh, someone abuses their power and ends up taking someone's life, you know, there can't be a blue wall of silence for anything like that. So, um, you know, know that there's much respect. Uh, nobody hates uh, cops that I know. But I know plenty of people who look like me who fear cops, and I think for good reason. Greg, last topic as our time is ending. Let's go back to the media for a moment. Um, you know, Fox News, CNN, everything in between. Everyone's got their go-to sources. Few of us are patient or have enough time to, you know, balance our reporting and intake from a variety of different sources. I love that sort of um, four box model that plots all the different media sources on conservative yeah. to, you know, liberal to middle of the road and such. What is your overall opinion? You're sort of, um, you know, editor emeritus, right? You've been in the trenches your entire career. You're one step removed now from the principle of Deke Digital helping, you know, companies uh, build their thought leadership. What, what is your overall advice to the average citizen media consumer on how to trust the media, how biased is it, where to get your news, how to make sure that you're informing yourself properly as we go into the new elections, which are probably, yeah. we always hear this is the most important election. No, 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 this one coming up, make no mistake, is the most consequential presidential election in the 200, almost 50 years of this country. Make no mistake about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say? Uh, what I have to say is, uh, you know, you should have a rich menu of of um, of content that you take in, um, but 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 you should you know you know you should accord your most trust to the most reliable source of information that you you've had. If you read something, I mean, you want to test it. You want to test the veracity of it, and if time after time when you test the veracity of what you've been being been told by by a news organization and it stands up to scrutiny um then the trust should um should increase um i i think we have to sort of you know uh, put the media that that we consume to the truth test 
And if the media doesn't meet the truth test, then it goes down in credibility and eventually you stop, you stop, you stop using it. Um, that, that's what I would just say is that, you know, you, we have to be as responsible, uh, personally responsible for what we put in our brain as we are and what we put into the rest of our body. And, um, you know, uh, and subjected to the same type of scrutiny, like, you know, we read labels and count calories. Well, we, we need to sort of like apply that same kind of test to the various sources of uh, media information that we take in. Um, I've always said that, you know, sugar is really good for you, but if you uh, eat too much sugar, what happens? You get diabetes. So, so you need to be careful if you take in, you know, a lot of junk content, Eventually, you know, your your brain is going to be polluted and so is your views and it's really going to incapacitate you in terms of, um, you know, your ability to be a fully functioning citizen uh, in America. So be careful what you take in, uh, make sure you apply the truth test and those organizations that provide information that stands up to the truth test and the test of time they go up on a credibility scale. So that's how I do it. That's what I tell people. Greg, thank you for joining us. I'm honored yeah. to call you my friend. Thank you for judging me less on my ignorance and more <laughs> on my level of interest. I appreciate you letting me ask questions that to some might seem really uh, 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 unsophisticated and, 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 and pedantic and others might have hit them right where they are still. And I think this has been a great conversation. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Really appreciate being on your show. I'm a huge fan. And now uh, I get to be a part of it. So thank you so much for having me. And I, I really did appreciate the dialogue. The honor is all ours, Greg Moore. Your article in the Colorado Sun, anybody can Google it, but it'll also be attached to this week's On Leadership newsletter and interview. It is a life-changing perspective of what your own journey has been like. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you. See you later. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Two long interviews, but I think two valuable interviews from Stedman Graham and Greg Moore. I hope we help to progress each of our levels of awareness and how we can be part of the solution. Thanks for your time today. We'll see you back next week for another interview on leadership.